Radio, bringing you the stories behind the music. We take you behind the triple glazing of Abbey Road Studios. As we go inside Abbey Road on Absolute Radio. You came all the way from Israel. Argentina. Australia. Australia. Washington. Quebec City, Canada. We've come to bring our six-month-old to get the iconic shot at the crossing. It was a visit we need to do. When we got here, he cried. Just to know that they walked here, you know. I'm from Japan. 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 The United States, Nevada. We're from Sydney, Australia. Maidstone. Over an hour away. We got a whole Beatles tour lined up. She like Beatles. We like... Uh, <laughs> I was going to see where the Beatles did their work. I went to across the Abbey Road. My aunt used to live down there. Oh. Never knew she was right next door to the Beatles. They love the Beatles. Beatles are fun. Uh, yeah. Of course, I like the Beatles since it's the Beatles. So. I like the Beatles. Um, I guess because it's famous. <laughs> this is sort of my pilgrimage. From Washington, D.C. From France, Brazil. I'm from Brisbane, Australia. I live in Brazil. 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 This is Inside Abbey Road on Absolute Radio. My name is Merrick Styles. I am the head of audio products at Abbey Road Studios. Right then. We are in the reception of Abbey Road. And this is kind of significant because back in the early 20s, the industry, as in terms of the recording industry, was really starting to kick off and the way recordings were made back then, it was still very basic. Studios just didn't exist. Around about the same time as well, there was a merger between HMV and Parlophone and Columbia, and the Gramphone company became EMI, Electric Music Industries, because then they also started to use electrical means of recording music. It became apparent that they needed a dedicated space to do this. So when they were scouting around for a place to build their studio, they found number three, Abbey Road. We're just looking at the original deeds here to number three. What really attracted them was this bit here on the deeds. It says, large garden at rear. 22,750 square feet of garden. Many people say the same thing. It's like, how are the studios in that building? It doesn't look right from the outside. And that's because it was a three-story townhouse. But we're now standing in the reception and everything you see beyond those doors there, the exit from the reception into the main building, that was all the original gardens. So they built the studios on the grounds of the gardens. They also bought the building next door, so they had the garden next door as well, and they also bought some land going into a neighbor's garden as well. So there was, it's a huge footprint, but it doesn't look like it from the outside. They bought the studios, I think, in 1929. They were open November 1931. They hired architects Wallace and Gilbert, who did the famous Hoover building, to actually design the studio, even to the point of some of the acoustics in the studio, which I guess was outside of their comfort zone. It's a pretty fast turnaround, and it was unknown territory in a way. The concept of a recording studio just didn't really exist, so it really was uncharted territory. The official opening ceremony was Sir Edward Elgar in Studio One. I'll take you in there in a minute and that's how it all began. My name is Mark Lewison and I'm a Beatles historian who has spent a lot of time at Abbey Road. Um. 
first time I went to Abbey Road, I was about 12, and it was 1970. And, you know, the Abbey Road album taught me where they had worked. So I went to have a look at that place and just stood outside and looked at it as people still do 50 years on. But then I got eventually to go and work there. As a writer, I wrote the book of the Beatles recording sessions. It was obviously a great thrill and a delight to be able to go into Abbey Road every day and kind of call it my working space for a year or more. The Beatles ended up at Abbey Road because they were signed to Parlophone Records and Parlophone was an EMI Records label. What we now call Abbey Road was then quite simply just known as EMI Recording Studios. So that's where they had to work. That meant that other EMI artists were there as well. And EMI didn't just record pop or rock, it recorded the entire gamut of recording artists. So when the Beatles were in the studio, they were quite often seeing around in the corridors and in the canteen lots of other musicians. As such was their fame that they were very quickly the focus of all attention. So At the time, it wasn't known where they recorded. So by calling their album Abbey Road, the instant reaction was, why is it called Abbey Road? What is Abbey Road? Where is Abbey Road? So because the album sold in millions, the studio started to be called Abbey Road. And it was really EMI Recording Studio. But because so many people were calling it Abbey Road, they literally changed the name of the studio to match the name of the album. And it became known as Abbey Road Studios. Well, Abbey Road was, for the Beatles, it was just the ideal combination of the situation in that they had their producer there, George Martin, he was staff. But Abbey Road was very good at training its staff, its audio engineers in particular. So the Beatles always had a high degree of efficiency and talent around them in terms of capturing their sounds. I'm Alan Parsons, and I started at Abbey Road Studios at the end of 1968. I was tender age of 19, and many years later, in the 90s, I was actually running the place. I was the uh, VP of EMI Studios. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. I wrote to the manager of the studios at the time, Alan Stagg, and he granted me an interview. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, I got the job, and I was there working in the tape library, as many engineers did before coming down to be a fly on the wall on sessions. Strangely, the first experience with the Beatles was not at Abbey Road, it was at their studios in Savile Row, the Apple building, and Abbey Road supplied some equipment, and I was sent down to tape hop, and then the following summer, they came in to do the Abbey Road album, and I was one of the second engineers. John Kerlander did the first period, I did the second period. I'm John Kerlander, and I was on staff at Abbey Road from 1967 to 1997. The last 10 or 11 years of that, I was chief engineer. I lived literally around the corner in the next street and my school that I went to was on the other side of the studio so I would walk past the studios twice a day and when I was 16 I applied to a whole load of studios and Abbey Road or EMI as it was it was called wrote back immediately in September of 1967 very, very basic interview, asking some very silly questions. I think one of the questions was, do you know how to change a light bulb? A few days later, they offered me a job. And the first job that you would have at that 
point was to be put in the tape library, which was basically a runner delivering and returning tapes. You got to know your way around the building and got to meet everybody. You would be assigned in the tape library until the next vacancy came up for an assistant engineer. That could be anything from a few months to a couple of years. My time there, I was less than three months. I started assisting in the beginning of 68. It seemed like an opportunity of a lifetime, really. And the main thing was just not to screw up. The tape operator, the assistant engineer, is essentially responsible for playing the tape that's being recorded, winding back and forth, pressing record, hopefully at the right time, the right place. A very responsible job, actually. Punching in, doing tape editing, doing all the session documentation, writing stuff down, and taking notes of everything. And of course, doing the setup of the mics. The scope for mistakes is enormous. I mean, back then, if you pressed record at the wrong moment, everything was erased and was not recoverable. There was no undo button back then. So a very responsible job, but fun nevertheless. And I did a whole load of different stuff. One of the things I'd worked with Jeff Emmerich, who's a Beatles engineer, was the Zombies, Odyssey and Oracle album. Through that, when it came to Abbey Road, he asked me to work on it with them. Not everybody would be chosen to work on a Beatles session. You know, you had to be asked, and it was something quite special. What goes on in the studio is kind of pretty sacrosanct. Yeah, it's kind of sacred. Def definitely quite intimidating to start with. I'd actually turned 20 by then. It was a fantastic experience. In doing a Beatles session, it was very different to any other session around. The other sessions were all in three-hour blocks, either 10 to 1, 2 to 5, 7 to 10, and then at 10 o'clock you'd be finished. The Beatles ran things slightly differently, and they would start at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon and go non-stop without a break until maybe 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning. There were no breaks, and you couldn't leave the room, and all the meals were brought in. And you basically just had to be there on call all the time for like 12, 13, 14 hours. Because we were working with valve equipment, it would quite often go wrong. At least once a day, something would go wrong. The minute that would happen, another assistant engineer called Richard Langham would launch into a routine of jokes, like just stand-up comedy routine. And he would go through this, especially on Beatles sessions, and they loved him because of that. And in most cases, no one, not the producers or the artist, ever realized that there was actually a technical breakdown. And then the technical engineer would just give him the nod, say, it's okay, we're good to go. <laughs> Sadly, it was unusual to see all four Beatles under the <laughs> Abbey Road roof at the same time. It was largely a series of recording days by individual Beatles. And then George would come in, work on his songs, Paul would work on his songs, so on and so on. In fact, I think the only time that I did see them all together was on the final day when we wrapped up She's So Heavy and I was asked to cut the tape. <laughs> by John Lennon at a particular point, and that's what happened. The tape was cut, I inserted leader's tape, poof, there it was, that was the ending of the record. That was the last time I ever saw the four of them together. The work 
on the album covered about three months and at the time I thought okay this is the last Beatles album so it's going to be very very well respected and loved but I really didn't think that here in 2019 that we would be talking about it not at all Shortly after the Abbey Road album, three of the top engineers all left and the studios really didn't know what to do. So I was called up to the manager's office with John Leckie and Alan Parsons. And the three of us were told, okay, so our three top engineers have just walked out. And so we're going to be promoting you three, just like that. At this point, I would have been 19, we thought, well, yeah, but we really don't, don't know how to do this job. And they said, well, you're just going to have to learn. I think Alan must have figured it out pretty well because he did Dark Side of the Moon. So I mean, <laughs> I'm sure he figured it out pretty well. Oh, well, I'd actually forgotten that we'd done any sort of demo sessions or trial sessions. But, you know, John's a very talented engineer and continues to this day to specialise in uh, film music and orchestral sessions. I wanted to move into a slightly different direction. I was doing like pop and rock sessions and I started doing classical recording as well. So as you can probably hear, we're now in a very large room. This is Studio One. This is where it all began. This has been here since 1931. It's considered one of the most beautiful acoustics in the world. It was built predominantly for classical music. In the early 30s, um, the studios opened, classical music was the music industry, let's say. Over the years, it's kind of changed its purpose in a way. So if we jump forward a little bit, in the mid-70s, classical music started to dry up. And it was a problem because this studio just wasn't being used. I've heard stories of five-a-side football tournaments going on in here between the technical department and Pink Floyd, the people playing badminton, just doing all sorts of things other than actually doing recordings. It did become a problem, certainly to the point where there were plans drawn up to actually divide this up into two smaller pop studios with underground car parking facilities. If that had have happened, Abbey Road Studios wouldn't be here right now. And luckily, that plan was stopped in its tracks by the general manager at the time, Ken Townsend, because he was like, well, this is a historic room. There has to be a another way. And he, and he did find another way. He contacted a company called Anvil Films, a film scoring facility. So Ken had the bright idea of saying to them, why don't you guys bring your clients here, bring the projection equipment here. We provide the space and the microphones, tape machines, etc., and we do this joint venture. So Abbey Road Anvil was born about in 1981. I think the first film to be done here, or maybe the second or third, was Raiders of the Lost Ark. It just kind of snowballed from there. Lots of big 80s hits were done here. Aliens, uh, Robocop, Brazil, and it just hasn't really stopped. More recently, uh, all the Harry Potters, the Lord of the Rings, Hobbit films, a lot of the Marvel films are done in this room. If you look at the credits to a film, you know, there's a high chance you're gonna see an Abbey Road credit there. It's that significant. It's a pretty amazing experience. There's a big screen at the back there of the room. 
So that comes down, the projection room's up there, and you've got the orchestra laid out. Each orchestra member's got like a, a small lamp that goes over their score they've got in front of them. So all the lights are down, you've got these small desk lights all, all around the room for each orchestral member, and then the film is being projected. It's quite an epic experience to be in this room when that's happening, it's um, pretty amazing. The early 80s, we were entering the age where all the huge rock stars all wanted to put the London Symphony Orchestra on their record. So I think one of my favorite memories from the mid 80s was recording an 80-piece orchestra with Ozzy Osbourne on lead vocal. <laughs> I think it was late 70s, and Ozzy had just been in all the newspapers for like biting the heads off a chicken on stage. And that coincided with him wanting to do this orchestral track for the album Bark at the Moon. 80 musicians of the Royal Philharmonic were in the studio doing this track. And then Ozzy just said, uh, I want to do a live vocal. <laughs> so fine, okay, so we quickly set up a vocal mic and he sang with the orchestra and Whatever else I may not be able to remember, I remember that. <laughs> it's so wrong on every level. I'll show you some of these pianos. So we've got quite a lot of historic instruments lying around Abbey Road. And it's amazing that these instruments are still here. And you know, when you say to an artist what it's been used on, then they want to use it as well, and, and thus it keeps going. But this is known as the Mrs. Mills piano. There was an artist called Gladys Mills who did a lot of, she called it party music. And this was known as Mrs. Mills's piano because she used it so often. And it's got this unique sound. Um, so they're always looking for new sounds. And Stuart Eltham, who was one of the first breed of pop engineers here at the studio, requested that this piano have the hammers lacquered. So you've got a very hard percussive sound. So when it strikes the strings, instead of this soft velvet, you get this hard lacquered strike on the strings. And also all the strings were sort of slightly detuned. So you get that kind of chorusy sort of sound. And these pianos would just be lying around for, let's say, you know, the likes of the Beatles. They would also be looking for new sounds. So this piano was used on a little help from my friends, Penny Lane. At the end of a day in the life, they wanted some sort of big, unusual sound to just, to just finish it off. And I think they tried humming, first of all. And that clearly wasn't going to work. So they had the idea of striking three pianos together. So it was this, this piano, Mrs. Mills, it was one of the Challen pianos, and the Steinway Grand piano. So it's like, you know, everyone's standing around those pianos, and one, two, three, strike the chord, and then it ring out, and that's what that sound is. Coming up on Inside Abbey Road. Yeah, if we go through the studio tip. The Beatles recording sessions were Incredible. They wanted everything to be better than what they'd done before. I mean, we've got seven years of stories. I mean, there are just so many. Absolute Radio presents Inside Abbey Road on Absolute Radio. 
Welcome back to Inside Abbey Road on Absolute Radio. You know you're in an environment that's historically important. You know who's been here before you. But you are, I guess, becoming a part of that history when you record it here. You know, it's incredible. Every time I walked up those steps, literally every day for 20 years, I felt this is a palace of great creativity. You don't realise how big this place is. Because they say most people just think it's a house like next door, but it's not, it's certainly not. One of my best beginnings, huh? This is Studio Two, the famous Studio Two. This has been here since 1931 as well. Unlike Studio One and Studio Three, this doesn't look massively different from when it first opened. Whatever it is they did back then, they kind of nailed it first time. Probably the most significant difference from when the studios opened was in the late 50s, these stairs were installed. Uh, the reason for that is, is that the control room was moved upstairs to get more space. When the studios opened, they were still cutting to wax, cutting lathes. It was quite a simple process compared to today's standards. It was very basic, so you didn't need a huge amount of space. Now, when stereo came along, tape machines, electrical means of recording, things just, just slowly got bigger, slightly more complicated. So more space was needed in the control room. And so in the mid fifties, they moved the control room upstairs. And that's how the famous Studio Two stairs came about. Orchestral music was Studio One and Studio Two was more of the pop music of the time. But in terms of the pop music, in terms of like rock and roll, that didn't come about until probably the mid fifties. And when it did, I don't think it was taken massively seriously by the recording industry. So it was the younger engineers who started to get involved in the recording of pop music. So it was quite a big deal, quite a big ask to suddenly start recording this new style of music. And they were pioneers in terms of how do you record a guitar band? So they were experimenting themselves, I would say, and making some pretty significant contributions to how we still record today. And back then it was treated as you're trying to recreate the experience of being in front of a band, watching a band play live. And if you listen to, for example, the first Beatles album versus the last Beatles album, they're, they're very different sonically sounding concepts. The reason why is because as pop music, you know, obviously wasn't a fad, it wasn't going anywhere. It became, you know, the biggest thing ever in terms of the you know, recording industry, let's face it. The recording process became more experimental and the sound changed and developed. And I would say the Beatles were a large part of that and how that happened, certainly at Abbey Road. It's right. Okay, George. Yeah, okay. Okay. 
One of the key hallmarks of the Beatles was that they didn't want to stand still. And when they met George Martin, he was very likely the only music producer in London who would have been accommodating of their own point of view and their wishes to be heard. You didn't see always why things had to be done by the textbook. Well, that suited the Beatles perfectly because that was their attitude as well. Uh, yeah. Okay. They wanted everything to be better than what they'd done before. And we had a technical department upstairs that their main job was repairing gear, but they would also invent stuff and make it. So we would call down Ken Townsend, who was one of the technical engineers who later went on to be the manager of Abbey Road. But we'd call down Ken and say, can you build something that does this? And we'd be talking about something that just didn't exist before. Oh, sorry, I buffed it. I'm glad you did. Oh, good. Because I had earlier, but I wasn't going to tell. <laughs> They'd come back with a prototype two or three days later, and we'd try it out and play it to the Beatles. And if they liked it, then the technical guys would go refine it a bit and finish it to make it into a usable tool. If you wanted something and you had a great idea, you had to build it. They had the advantage of Abbey Road's technical staff to solve any problem that arose during a session. There was, for example, an occasion in 1966 when they were tiring of manually double-tracking their voices or instruments or whatever they were trying to achieve in terms of sound. I think it was John Lennon who, who said to Ken once, you know, why do I have to sing the same thing twice? Like, can't you build something that would double-track it automatically? And Ken then came up with this idea of how to do it. And that was something that had never been done before. Their first album was recorded in a day on a twin track tape machine. Four tracks weren't even used for pop music back then. You'd record all the music on track one and then do the vocal overdubs on track two, and that was it. And then four tracks started to be used, so you could record maybe the whole rhythm section on track one. And then you could overdub hand claps and percussion. Vocals and backing vocals. Here come old flat top, he come grooving up slowly, he got... And maybe a solo guitar start doing this concept of, of layering tracks up. And then four tracks wasn't enough. You know, this is certainly in the case of the Beatles. They would bring another four track tape machine into the studio. They would bounce the first four tracks onto one track of a second four track tape machine and thus give you three more tracks to layer on. They'd do that up to four or five times. If you decided your drums weren't quite loud enough, I mean, it's tough, you know, you, you've committed it. I think if you said to anyone today that you're gonna make your album on a four track, it would freak them out. <laughs> it's just like, what? <laughs> But if you listen to Let's Take a Day in the Life, for example, I mean, that's a seriously, seriously complicated production going on there. I read the news today, oh boy. And that was done on a four-track tape machine, and I think that's a pretty amazing achievement. You know, it was the Beatles that 
pushed the technical engineers here to really push the limits as to what could be done. They started to get involved in the production process themselves, which was unusual for the time for a band to actually be in the control room, pushing the faders, using the tape machines. That was kind of unheard of at the time. They didn't want to tour anymore from the mid-60s onwards. So there wasn't this responsibility to be able to recreate what they do in the studio live in front of an audience. So it was kind of like anything goes. If we want to add crazy backwards effects, if we want to add unusual instruments, we can do that. So in terms of creativity, there was a blank canvas, you know, they just went for it. That's why those early recordings, um, those early albums by the Beatles, they sound, for want of a better way, a bit more basic than the latter albums where they started to really experiment. And a lot of the stuff they were doing, it was mind-blowing to people. And things like that happened by mistake almost. You know, they'd rewind the tape machine, you get this crazy sound, they're like, what's that? How, how do we recreate that? Let's do that. It was so experimental and so immediate, that's how it happened. And then if you put yourself from the listener's point of view, it must have been pretty mind-blowing to go on this journey almost with them and hear these new sounds, new exciting sounds. And it was all still done with very primitive equipment. They were all using tape machines and tape machines weren't designed to be used like that. It was a case of using equipment in ways it wasn't designed to be used, almost abusing the facilities in a way. But, you know, lessons can be learned from that, but rules are there to be broken. You know, it's like, how do we push things to the max? All of that is still being done today. A lot of the groundwork was done in those early days of pop recording in this room, yeah, absolutely. There are great stories that have occurred through the years from when they're recording their first album in one day and it ends with John Lennon having to sing Twist and Shout even though they've been recording for like 10, 11 hours by then and he's got a bad cold to begin with and he's been working all day long and comes up with that extraordinary vocal. We'll shake it up, baby, now. Shake it up, baby. Twist and shout. I mean, these were just great moments in recording history. One of the things I remember very vividly is that Paul would come in for about a continuous week of sessions and singing Oh Darling. But he just wanted to basically roughen up his voice by singing really hard every day for a week. He just wanted to get his voice into that Kansas City type gruffness that you hear on, on final version. When you told me you didn't need me anymore. Well, you know I nearly broke down and cried. I'm not sure what state the echo chamber's in. Let's see if we can have a look. So as you can hear, it's um, almost like a, like a bathroom. So we're in a tiled room with pipes placed around to disperse the sound. And yeah, that was the only way to get that reverb effect in the early days of recording. A lot of studios got rid of their echo chambers once digital devices came along in the early 80s. But Abbey Road kept Studio 2's echo chamber and we're very fortunate to still have it here. 
I mean, this is the sound, if you like, of a lot of those 60s recordings, certainly on the vocals, and it's still used to this day. I worked on a Paul McCartney album, it's called Memory Almost Full, and Paul was just still looking for new sounds and whatnot, and he was in this fire exit area we're in now between the studio and the echo chamber, and he was like, why don't we record the drums in here? And I was like, okay, uh, yeah, why not? <laughs> and it was a really cool sound actually, Paul was playing. The only problem was because the fire doors are just there, which go back onto someone's garden, Paul was playing for about 15 minutes and then security guards started getting complaints from the next door neighbors. So I had to very sheepishly go down the stairs and ask Paul to stop playing. <laughs> but we got the take, so it was all good. But I just thought it was interesting because I, I never would have thought to have done drums in here. Just because that's the studio area doesn't mean you have to record there. When the studios opened, it was quite segregated in a way. You had HMV, who had Studio One, Parlophone had Studio Two, and Columbia Records had Studio Three. And Parlophone did a lot of comedy records. So this room saw a lot of those early comedy records done in here. And then the Hollies recorded a lot of their music in here. He's my Pretty Things, The Zombies. Bush did a lot of stuff in here in the 80s. In the 90s, the Britpop thing, you know, Oasis did a lot of recordings in here. And Paul Weller and Green Day, U2, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Muse, Adele. And then, obviously, Pink Floyd as well. Dark Side of the Moon was done in here. The first time I worked with Pink Floyd was just a one-off mix session for Amagama. Then the next album, which was Atom Heart Mother, I was the second engineer for all the recording sessions. And it turned out that Peter Bowne was not available to do the mixing. And uh, presumably they were adequately satisfied with the job I did to ask me to start from scratch on the Dark Side of the Moon sessions. So they let me loose on the sessions as the main remix engineer. And that's how my career with Big Floyd started. You know, I'm never allowed to forget that, uh, that I was the engineer on Dark Side of the Moon. You know, virtually every day of my life, I'm reminded in some way or other, even, either by hearing a song on the radio or somebody mentioning it to me. But it was a great thing to do, and uh, you know, I'm very proud of it. And it gave me my first Grammy nomination. think that was done in the early 70s is, is pretty amazing. It still sounds fresh and sort of mind-blowing to this day. Even still by today's standards, the recording equipment used on Dark Side of the Moon is quite primitive, but you would never guess it. Pink Floyd was famous for placing enormous demands on, on the available technology. It's worth mentioning that there was no digital devices back then. Everything was analog. So any delay effect or reverb effect were all analog devices. For example, to achieve the vocal repeats on us and them, we uh, had to use an eight-track machine going through two tracks at a time and running the tape slower than usual. Us, us, us. 
I remember at the mixing stage, I mean, we, we were probably using almost every tape machine in the building. There were, there were cables running down corridors and passages to patch in extra tape machines because we would be using a large number of them. And the patch bay looked like a huge spaghetti of cables. It was pretty complicated stuff. And that was another massively significant record. Still to this day, you listen to that recording and it's, it blows people away, just the way it sounds. I did record the plots. It was actually originally intended for an EMI sound effects record. So I was commissioned to go and do that. And when I heard the original intro that they had for the song Time, which was just uh, Roger Waters playing a clicky sound on, on the bass guitar, and I mentioned these plots that I'd recorded, and they heard them and loved the idea, and then we incorporated it onto the record. Like many people that were around the studios at that time, they were sent into the studio and asked to answer a number of questions on cards, on mic. And the star of the show, as I'm sure you know, was Jerry Driscoll, the janitor, cleaner guy, the Irish guy that you hear, you know, there is no dark side in the moon, really. There were fun times. I mean, we enjoyed making that record. We really did. To this day, it's the studio that people just want to come and record in and do something in. It just evokes this sense of creativity mixed with historical significance. What should we look at next? Uh, we're going to shoot you three, I guess. I want to know everything because I'm fascinated with the place. A building which is basically studios that have all got closed doors, it turns it into one great big community. Some would say the most important part of Abbey Road. That's after the break on Inside Abbey Road. There is no dark side in the moon, really. Matter of fact, it's all dark. This is Inside Abbey Road on Absolute Radio. Welcome back to Inside Abbey Road on Absolute Radio. Okay, so he wants uh, his, his camera. I remember Paul said, why don't we call the photographer and tell him to meet us outside tomorrow in the street. We'll take the picture in the street and then we'll call it Abbey Road. August the 8th, 1969, they sat on the steps of the recording studio until the moment was right, the photographer was ready, and then they just walked across the zebra crossing. Six times, three one direction and three the other. I mean, we actually changed the name from EMI to Abbey Road two or three years after the album. This moment is now a listed zebra crossing and one of the most popular and most visited tourist attractions in London. Abbey Road seems to have risen to sort of this mythical place. You know, when people come by the studio and walk in the crossing, they feel like they're walking in the steps of history. I mean, every night you're going home, you're pushing people out the way, you know, who want to have their picture taken on the crossing. It's just phenomenal. I never cross there, I always walk down the road a bit. It's safer. Sometimes there's hundreds of people. I mean, really, hundreds. And I've never asked anyone about why they do it, because I know the first time I came here, I did it. 
I just, I just walked across the street and I said, all right, cool. This is Studio 3. Unlike Studio 1 and Studio 2, I guess this looks more like a modern studio. This was actually the room that Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here was recorded and mixed in. Revolver was recorded in here. It's developed a whole sound and character of itself. It's a really good creative space because you've got the lounge upstairs, you've got the big control room, and you've got the various different booths so people can sort of split up if you like and have their own little area and do their thing and just have that kind of creative factory. A lot of rock and pop stuff happens in here. Amy Winehouse sadly did her very last recording in here with Tony Bennett. And then over the years, I mean, there's Foo Fighters and Manic Street Preachers. Kanye West is recorded in here. You can change the acoustics in this room as well. So at the moment, there's this blue material, which is like a carpet almost, so it absorbs sound, whereas you can flip all of this over to wood, which reflects sound. So if you want a louder, brighter, more reverberant sound, you can change the acoustics. This is the control room of Studio 3. This is considered one of the best mixing rooms in the world. It's very neutral sounding. What you hear in here translates very well to the outside world and that's what you want when you mix. You want to know that you can trust the room you're in. This is another example of the best of old in you. So this is the TG mixing console. The recording gear was very bespoke. In some cases, some of the gear was only built for Abbey Road Studios. So it's very rare and very sought after. Even to this day, actually, the mixing console that was used to record Dark Side of the Moon was sold in an auction for millions. There is a real demand for this equipment. Luckily, at Abbey Road, we've still got a lot of it. And this is one of those examples. Body and soul. Hi, I'm Nile Rogers, and I'm uh, Chief Creative Advisor here at Abbey Road Studios. I've been incredibly creative and I advise a lot. The chief part, I'm not sure about. <laughs> but it's amazing to think that I haven't had a bad day here. Every, every day is fantastic. Because I sort of have creative carte blanche, I could really just do anything. So I bring almost every project that I'm working on here. And we find that the atmosphere is so wonderful that everything just seems to turn out right. I remember when they were first asking me about it and they said, Niall, how do you see Abbey Road in the future? And I said, huh, like Disneyland. 
<laughs> I want it to be a magical, musical, visual, playland, think tank, just anything we could think of, I want to be able to pursue. Abbey Road is the kind of place that I feel like I find exactly the right room that works for the right sound. The project that I'm working on here, I've done in already four different rooms to achieve many different sounds. But the great thing about Abbey Road is the versatility, is the fact that I have a wide variety of environments within this compound. And because I'm not here every day, because I have gigs to do and all sorts of stuff, concerts all over the world, every time I come back, it's almost like my first day. When I started making music, I didn't think in terms of recording studios. I thought in terms of symphony halls and spaces. When I bought records, I didn't think about where they were made. I only became aware of it when the Beatles talked about Abbey Road. And the first time I came, I was doing the Duran Duran album, Notorious. We had rented Studio Two because of the Beatles. They wanted to record what the Beatles recorded. Since I've been here, I've run into people like Cat Stevens. I mean, come on, I never, I never dreamed I'd ever meet Cat Stevens when I was a kid. So that was cool. Brian May, we just laughed and talked like we knew each other for years and years and years. And that sort of thing happens all the time here. Who else have I unexpectedly bumped into? Noel and I have been trying to get in the same room together, so it was just really incredibly convenient to walk and see him going, and I said, no, what are you up to? And I ran in the studio, and he played it for me, and I was like, oh, cool, this is grooving. Then I said, well, why don't we do a track together get Johnny Marr, myself, and you, and we'll just do something at some point in time. And he was like, okay, cool. Since I've been here, the list is really insane, impressive, and fun. Everybody that I've worked here with, from working on the film Cats, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, uh, which uh, Tom Hooper is now directing and turning it into a movie, to I brought my old band in, and we played uh, on two Dua Lipa tracks. And that was amazing. I mean, it was like totally amazing. And that felt so much like the old days. That felt like, you know, working with Madonna or Bowie, just like call my band and come in and play the record. The thing is, is that Abbey Road now, it, it feels like home to me. So having my band come and play with any artist that I'm writing with or producing is pretty natural. We just did our own version of Hey Jude for a wonderful charity, and it was great to have my band in here and everybody singing and playing. And as a matter of fact, one of my, my people said, this is why I started. I was like, I started playing because the Beatles were making records at Abbey Road, and now I'm here making a Beatles song at Abbey Road. And I've done maybe thousands of recordings. So 
for me to be able to bring people into my new home and there's there's love and good vibes and fantastic place to hang out and you have Doreen and all the people and Doreen to me is amazing As a matter of fact this morning she came into my room and kissed me I didn't know who it was because I had my back to the door I've put her in a couple of music videos she's just got an awesome vibe she's like your mother your best friend and an encyclopedia I'd be really curious to ask Doreen, okay, you know, what was so-and-so really like? I mean, really, you know, just, you can tell me. My name's Doreen Dunkley. I'm the restaurant manager at Tammy Road Studios. I've been here be 30 years at the end of this year, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. In the first thing in the morning, I'm catching up, doing my tills, half seven. Then I get all the fruit bowls and everything ready for all the control rooms and then from half eight, the restaurant's open, and then it's just people. So it's just one after the other. It's hard work, but enjoyable. I wouldn't stay if it wasn't enjoyable, that's for sure. <laughs> Every now and again, I do get a chance to go into the control room, because different people would say, oh, do come in and see, listen to this bit of music or this film. I can remember when, who was it? Shirley Bassey done some stuff here, and she was fantastic. It really, I mean, the whole orchestra was sort of in awe of her. And she was so relaxed. It was lovely to see. I wish I could have stayed there longer. <laughs> I had to get back to work, unfortunately. I met three of the Beatles. I met George and Ringo and Paul. All so down to earth. I mean, when Paul comes in, he always makes a point of coming into the restaurant, coming up to speak to me, give a kiss and ask how the family are and everything. Just what I mean, very down to earth. It's really nice, you know. I remember once we were sitting at the table having a meeting and all of a sudden he walked in, hello Doreen, just comes up and kissing, and everyone's going, you know, they're sort of in awe. But they say that's what he's like. It makes everyone feel comfortable. I've heard a few stories about the Gallagher <laughs> brothers. Um, I remember once Liam came in and he put his hand out, I thought he was going to shake my hand, and the next thing, kissing you all up the arm. But that's, he, he's just a prankster. But uh, there's two, two really nice guys, you know, but as you say, they've mellowed over the years. <laughs> you know, obviously after all these years, there's not many people you don't know. And it's lovely to see different directors and producers come back and they can always come into the restaurant, you know, oh, Doreen, you're here, great, you know. It's just family orientated and it just makes them feel at home. It, I think everyone sort of ends up coming to the restaurant, you know, for a little sit down and a meet with people, which is nice. Have a little chat and see how the day's going. They're having a good day or a bad day. <laughs> Someone will tell them about something they're doing and somebody else tell them something else. You know, you can hear how they compare different things. I mean, that's not my line, obviously, but uh, it's nice to listen to them. But uh, most of the gossip here, you've got to keep to yourself, haven't you? There's so many memories, you know, you can't sort of say pick one more than another, really. There's, there's just too many and they're all been good. I'm quite happy to be working, enjoy my work. I'm 73 now, so we'll see how we go. So there's one other room that is pretty worth showing, which is the gatehouse studio. We're now stood in the gatehouse studio, which is one of our newer facilities. Noel Rogers spends a lot of time in this studio. Noel Gallagher wrote and recorded his last two singles in this studio. I, mean, I have to say, I think it's my favourite studio at the moment. I love this room. The way it makes me feel, the lighting, the way it looks, the way it sounds. It's just a really nice creative place to be in. 
and that's so important. So in here, you look at Studio 3 and Studio 2, I mean the size of their studios today would be considered absolute luxury. This is what most modern studios look like and are, and that's why we built it, because we just wanted to provide that as well. So yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it, I think. Is that, is that enough? A one, two, three, four. In the 50s and 60s, there were a lot of studios. Now there are very, very few, and yet Abbey Road has become what it is. But why? The Beatles made Abbey Road Studios the most famous recording studio in the world. I know the mystique of the Beatles and their aura and their magic attracts people to this place. I mean, if you didn't say that, you would be lying. <laughs> the Beatles didn't do any harm, but I think it's a lot more than that. You make a mistake to think Abbey Road is just about the Beatles. It really isn't. It's about so much more. There's another way to describe it. Abbey Road is a huge cultural phenomenon, I guess. We always like to say that there's voodoo in the walls. You think that somehow that magic is going to rub off on you. This came about through Kate Bush, who's very friendly with David Gilmore. They believe in ley lines. And ley lines are these like supernatural things, and they run across places in the world and it's like heightened magnetic energy that is supposed to inspire artistic brilliance and there's a ley line running right the way through Abbey Road and I thought well maybe there is something in it. You've seen outside the front there we get thousands of visitors throughout the year it's a place that people just want to come and see check out the crossing write their name on the wall it's quite amazing, really. It just has this vibe, this wonderful atmosphere. So much great music was created there, and that continues. It's something that people feel their career will not be complete without. It's like a rite of passage, really. I don't think there's anyone I've ever heard who said they haven't enjoyed their time here. They all say it goes too quick. It's a good place to work. If I still lived in London, I would be there all the time. But every opportunity I get, I love to go back and just reminisce and, and remember the good times I had there. There's no other studio anywhere else in the world that has that camaraderie. It's not just a bunch of rooms and studios, it's a community. It's a great place to work, great people who come and go, whether they're clients or whether they're staff. And we all just get on well together and that's what makes this place what it is, Abbey Road. You've been listening to Inside Abbey Road. I hope you all enjoyed. Is it